But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good to be back here this morning. Our family was on vacation last Sunday and so appreciate uh, Adrian preaching in our uh, in my absence. And we had a very restful, uh, really, really good vacation. So thank you, Adrian. Uh, before I begin to preach this morning, want to say um, how many, many prayers we have prayed for Beverly Hollifield. And she is here with us in worship this morning. And Beverly, we're so glad to have you. Would you welcome her this morning, sitting all the way in the back, and so glad to have you. Beverly has been duking it out with cancer for some time now, and uh, just great to see you and love your faith and God's work in and through you, Beverly. Uh, This morning, we begin a new series, and the series is called Toxic, and it is a series on the subject of sin. And so I would say to you this morning, as we launch into this sermon and then into the whole series, but especially today, it's summertime, but you can't check your brain at the door, all right? So somebody came up to me after the early service and said, just warn them to stick with you for a few minutes. And so I'm warning you, stick with me for a few minutes as we get started, uh, because this is how sin is. When I was a freshman in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, much like many of you perhaps who are uh, at that age or around that age. So I took all these different courses, and one of the courses I took was a pre-med biology class. It's hilarious to think that I would ever be a medical doctor, right? But just in case, I took pre-med biology. Uh, So what I did, we received at the very beginning of uh, that uh, semester a fetal pig. All right, little pig about this long. And uh, we were to dissect that pig for all of that semester. So that's what we began to do. Cut that thing open and probe around in there and figure out all that's in a little pig. Well, I grew up in Tennessee, uh, and in Tennessee, all we did with pigs was feed them, slop, and eat them. All right? So we didn't dissect them. I just looked at a pig as a big animal, right? But then as I was in biology class, this is how it culminated. We are in the last day of class, or not the last day of class. This is our final exam. It had two parts. One part is all written, just sitting, answering all kinds of questions. But the second part, we are walking through lab and we have all the fetal pigs set up, all of ours. But the professor and his assistant had gone through and put little pins in all the parts with a little sticker on them and a number on those pins. And we had a blank piece of paper with just numbers on it. Our task was to do this, go in and fill in all the blanks, right? Look at the numbers on the pins in the pig and fill in all the blanks. And so it's one pig after another, after another. As I recall, if I recall correctly, over a hundred little parts of that tiny little fetal pig, we had to know. 
I had no clue before the beginning of that semester that fetal pigs were that complex and had so many moving parts. And I would say to you this morning that you will have no idea until the end of this series that sin is so complex and has so many moving parts. It is and it does. And so what we're going to do is six sermons on sin. And in my theology text, I have a thick theology text, about 1,200 pages, five chapters devoted just to the study of sin. So it, 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 it merits our time. It merits our attention as we look into this series called Toxic. And so it's fitting that we begin where it all began, right? It's fitting if we're going to look at sin, that we look at where sin first evidenced itself, at least where humanity is concerned. We could go before this point to the fall of Satan. We're not doing that this morning. That's a whole other part of theology called angelology and demonology. And we're not getting into that today. But what we're going to see in Genesis 3 is the interaction of Satan with humanity, the resulting sin. And in doing so, we will discover three characteristics of the seriousness of sin. You want to take notes today, I promise you. The first characteristic of sin is this. Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. Before we look at what Satan said to Eve, I I want you to hear what God said to Adam. Look at this in verse 7, 16 and 17 of chapter 2. This is when God shows up to Adam and says, this is how you're to live in the garden. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You want to keep your mind or your finger on that verse because that is the initial communication from God to man about how to conduct himself in the garden. And now Satan slithers into the garden in Genesis 3 with the goal of unraveling this relationship that exists between a holy God, a loving God, and his creation, man. So what does he say? Let's pick it apart for a little bit. Uh, Satan said to the woman, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, now this is where you got to stick with me for just a few minutes because we've got to compare how Satan presents what God said and how God actually said it. So there are two names for God in the Old Testament primarily. There are many, right? But there are two primary, that, primary names that occur more than any other. You will see one of them just spelled God in your Bible and you will see the other Lord. Just to give you a simple way of understanding them... When you see God, that's God's powerful name. His name is creator. When you see Lord, that's God's personal name. His name as his covenant name. His name is father. All right. So God 
powerful, Lord personal, easy way to remember as you read through scripture this name. Notice in verse 16, then the Lord God said, the God who is both personal and powerful. But notice what Satan does when he talks to Eve in verse 3. He said to the woman, or chapter 3, did God actually say? He omits Lord. He says, did God? Why is he doing that? Because if he can unravel, don't miss this, in Eve's mind, that God is both personal and powerful, then Eve will begin to distance herself from God. If he can unravel in your mind that God is both personal and powerful, that he can handle any problem you have, that's his power. But he cares about it. That's his personal side. If he can eliminate that thinking in your mind, then all of a sudden this vast distance becomes created between you and him. And so that's what Satan does. Does she take the bait? We'll see that in a moment. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, so let me just, just pick this apart and look at what Satan says. He added a negative, not. Uh, look at this. You shall not eat of any tree. At the beginning of the clause. You don't see it in Hebrew, but at the beginning, not comes first. Why? Why would Satan take the negative command and put it before the positive? Because sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. Sin focuses on what you can't do, not what you can do. That's what sin always focuses on. What you can't do, not what you can do. Look at him. He also takes out, notice God said, you may surely eat of every tree. Satan doesn't use the word surely. Why? Because when God puts Adam in the Eve in the garden and he says to Adam, you may surely like, hey, you've got all of this, right? All of this is yours. You can have anything that you want. Wendy and I have had 11 different people live with us other than our children since we've been married. So we've been married almost 16 years and we've had 11 different people other than our children live with us. And inevitably, one of them will come in and they're there for a day or two. And we have said to them, the cupboard is yours. The fridge is yours. Our house is yours. We've given you a bed. We've given you a place to stay. But you know what their their tendency is to think? Surely not. Surely I don't have the run of the house. Yes, you do. And that's what God has said to, to Adam and Eve. You've got the run of the garden. You've got it. It's yours. But when Satan comes back to Eve, he admits, omits the word, surely. Why? He's saying, Eve, you're not really at home here. You don't really have the run of this place. So clever, isn't it? It's so clever. He undersells the love and the benevolence of God. And then he places that clause from any tree at the end of the sentence rather than at the beginning, as God did in his statement. Why? Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. And so Eve answers. Notice her answer. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She took his bait. All right. That's her answer. Look at what God said. You may surely eat of every 
Eve, when she answers the serpent, which she never should have done, omits surely and omits every. All of a sudden, her focus is not on all the trees she can eat, but on the one she what? She can't. Don't miss that. All of a sudden, her focus is not on all of the trees she can eat, but only on the one whose fruit she can't. Why? Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. She took his bait and it doesn't stop there. Look at what she says. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, all right, so you're tracking with me. I'm repressed. You're tracking like you're focused. What does Eve leave out? Lord, what has she already lost? Personal. But God, who is powerful, said, already. Already she's, she's left that out. This is where our relationship with God begins to unravel. Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. This is another, it's a nuanced thing, but it's pretty amazing. Notice how she identifies the tree. She doesn't call it what it is anymore. She identifies it by where it is. You say, what what does that mean? All right. So whoever the marketing guy who came up with the idea to put all the junk that kids should never have by the cash register. You with me on this? Yes. If you've ever had little children in the grocery store, right? All of a sudden you get to the cash cash register. I've never understood why we need chewing gum in a tobacco box, right? That looks like skull, but for some reason we do. And so it's there. It's every, it's everything. And do you know what happens to your kid? You watch this. Here's what happens to your kid. Your kid gets so caught up in there where there is, they don't care. Mom, I want, mama, what do you want? I don't know. Just something there. Just something. Mama want that. Mama want that. They don't know what they want. They just want what is there. Sin works just like that. You forget what it is you even want. You just want it because you what? Can't have it. Isn't that interesting? You don't don't even see it anymore. Like all of a sudden, blinders. If you've ever parented teenagers, you've seen this, have you not? Blinders just come down. And you as a parent can look at your child and say, uh-uh, I know that's not what you want. I know that is oh, oh, but I want it. But mom, I want it. But dad, I want it. No, no, I know it isn't. Yeah, but I want it. What is it that you want? I don't know. I just want it. That's where Eve is. She's lost her sensibility. She's lost her sanity. In her thinking, she only sees it. And then look what she says. God says, don't eat it and don't touch it. Go back to 16 and 17. Did God ever say not to touch it? No. 
her view of God has already changed. God is the God of the no. Right? The God of the no. Not the God of the yes. He's not the God of the whole garden but one tree. He's the God of, well, he won't let me have that tree. He says not even to touch it. No way. Never said. Wow. Wow. Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. And then she finishes her sentence with lest you die. Go back to 2.16 and, and it says lest you surely die. Why is that? Surely is of certainty. Could I say something to you? The greatest, one of the greatest gifts of the grace of God are consequences, right? How many things have you thought about doing, but you decided not to do because there were consequences? It's a gift of the grace of God. And you know what? She eliminates the word surely. Maybe it won't happen to me. Maybe I can eat it and I won't have the same consequences that uh, that happened to somebody else. No, she won't get pregnant. I won't get a disease. Uh, I won't get caught drinking and driving. I and all of a sudden things get significantly turned in the mind. Sin diminishes God's grace and amplifies God's law. Sin diminishes God's plan, number two, and amplifies our desires. Look at this. Satan is now talking for God, not Lord God. For God knows, he questions God's motivation, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. What does he mean by that? God isn't trying to protect you. He's trying to prevent you. God doesn't have your back. He's just pulling the wool over your eyes. It's what Satan says. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God wants us to be like him, doesn't he? He wants us to emulate him. He wants us to emulate his character. It's God's desire that we be like him. Knowing good and evil, Satan has three counterclaims. You won't die, you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. And do you know what the challenge is with those? They're all true and they're all false. We call them half-truths today, don't we? Uh, How so? How so? When said in the larger context of the story, the... Their eyes were indeed open. That's true. They obtained knowledge belonging up until that point only to God. That's true. And they did not immediately die. It's half-truths. Half-truths only showed what the woman would gain, not what she would lose. Wow. Only showed what she would gain, not what she would lose. 
One commentator, and I'll put it on the screen for you, says this. So the tempter pits its bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. The pattern repeats in Christ's temptation and in ours. What do I mean by that? Or what does the, the, the writer mean by that? Satan says, God doesn't love you. Prevents divine love is envy. Let me make you envy God. That's what got Satan kicked out of heaven. Envy in God. Let me make you envy God. Number two, uh, you're not serving him. He's a humiliating master, so it's servility, right? God's just out. He He just needs a bunch of little minions running around doing his deal. And number three, this will be life, but it's really a suicidal plunge. So the woman, when she saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desired to make one wise. What was it? It would make her full, make her feel better, and make her her wise. Oh, I want that. Oh, it'll taste so good. It looks so good. And I'll be smarter after I eat it. Right? Sounds like a good marketing campaign, doesn't it? It looks so good. It, it will make me feel so good. And I'll even know more after I have eaten it. Oh, to you and me, in retrospect, it sounds like a late night, 30-minute uh, TV ad, doesn't it? It's the latest and greatest. It works. My son Trent and I has great skepticism for things like that. And, and since I can remember, if we ever watched any of, you know, this glue that will cause the bottom of a boat to stay intact, right? You've seen that one. There's something like that. You just spray it on and all of a sudden you don't have leaks anymore. Trent said, Trent has said from the get-go, Dad, you know that doesn't work. And we'll evaluate all these things. And it's easy to see from a distance, right, that you're being played. But, but when it's close up, it's harder, isn't it? When your heart's involved, it's harder. When, when it's a delight to the eye, when it's going to taste good, it's going to make you feel good. She took of the fruit and ate. So simple the act. So hard it's undoing. Don't miss this. I want to fast forward now. Thousands of years later, Jesus, now as they were eating, this is the last supper, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and do what, church? Say that loud. What? Eat. This is my body. So simple the act. So hard it's doing. What did Jesus mean by that? When Eve took that fruit and ate, and she handed it to Adam, and he ate, it plunged every human being who would ever live into the abyss of sin. So how in the world would God undo that? Oh, it would be 6,000 years later, God would take through his son Christ a loaf of bread and break it in two and say, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. If there is any hope and there is, 
for the seriousness of sin. It is the reality that it is on the, the first take and eat is only undone by, by the next take and eat. And that's Jesus Christ saying, here's my body. Take, eat. If you do, sin covered. If you do, sin atoned for. If you do, sin eradicated. How easy it was for Eve to eat. How hard it was for Jesus to follow through on that, right? It would lead him to a cross where just like that loaf of bread, his own physical body would be pierced and broken and the blood would flow. Take and eat. If you've ever, ever, ever had your sins atoned for, it is only because at some point one day you took and you ate. And you said, I believe in the broken body of Jesus. I believe in the spilled blood of Jesus. I gladly take and eat to undo what Adam did. She took and she ate. Sin diminishes God's plan and amplifies our desires. Third, sin diminishes our nearness to God and amplifies our distance from him. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, just like Satan promised. And they knew that they were naked. You know how this feels. You've sinned again. Whatever it is, it was the tongue that went wild out of anger. It was the eyes that looked in lust. It was the hands that grabbed in greed. You've sinned again. And maybe you sleep on it. And as soon as you wake up the next morning, what is on your mind? The sin. And there's a cloud. And you think, can I talk to God about this again? Can I go to him again? Notice what happened. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Rather than being like God, like Satan promised, they didn't even want to be with him. They just wanted to be away from him. They were scared. And if you're familiar with this story, your familiarity is hurting you right now because you assume that God would always come walking in the garden because that's what you've known and heard. But does God have to do that? No. No. He could say, all right, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not going to go down anymore and walk in the garden and fellowship with Adam and Eve and enjoy their company. They've blown it. I'm gone. I'm out. But he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And how appropriate on Father's Day that God here is seen as a consummate father. Because if he is only God and he's powerful, he'll kill them. But if he's Lord God and he's personal, he loves them. 
You can never divorce the two. God is both Lord and he is God. He loves you deeply but hates the sin that tangles you up. And in his power, he can eradicate that sin's power in your life. And in his personal love for you, wants to come walk in the garden still after you have blown it. And what does he do? Comes walking in the garden. And it is not accusations, is it? Oh, that's easy to do, isn't it? As a parent, I've been guilty. Your kid blows it, well, you know, just comes out. And all parents in the room know exactly what I just said. You've said it too, right? You know what your kids do wrong. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to point out the wrong. We were on vacation this past week. We were down in Florida on a... A uh, little island in, in uh, uh, Sanibel, just a little island down there. And so we went on this dolphin cruise. It was so cool. So somebody just gifted it to us. And, well, we, we got there late. We didn't, we had to kind of hop across a little causeway to another island and get to the marina. And we didn't factor in all the time and the slow traffic and all that craziness. And so we get there and, you know, we're those people that everybody's cussing. You know, when, you know, they're sitting on the hot boat, right? Oh, it's them. This is why we didn't pull out, right? You know, so we're walking up, but the people who run the thing are so gracious. They're super, super gracious. And they call us on the way in. They call my cell phone. Are you coming? Yes, we're coming. We're, we're coming right there. And so, so there's somebody in the parking lot and they tell us, tell me where to park. I didn't even pay attention to where I was parking. Like they just said park here. And so I parked there. We jump out. We just, you know, we're, we're just hightailing it to the marina to get on the boat and, and just see, wow, these these dolphins were as close as Daniel is to me right now. And like splash water on us as we're watching them. It's so spectacular. So we get finished and we go back and, and an hour and a half later we get in the car. And Wendy says, well, honey, somebody has, uh, there's something on your windshield. And so I, I get out and I go and there's a note. I didn't realize until we got back to the car that we had blocked the walkway from the parking lot to the marina. I did it because somebody said to, but the note said, you are a true idiot. (laughs) That's what it said. And I said, honey, no, I'm not. I only did what they said to do. They said park right here, angle it in this way. I angled it in exactly like they said. Oh, I mean, I completely blocked any access. Right. So you had to walk all the way around, but I didn't know. Right. And I said to to Wendy, I said, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that. It's in my planner right now. I'm going to carry that with me when I'm tempted to judge somebody because I totally got misjudged. Right. And I just think it'd be awesome if for some freakish way, this podcast made it into that person's ears. (laughs) Right. That would be amazing. They were to call me up and say, I'm sorry. I would say, now who's the idiot? No, I wouldn't do that. Just kidding. But at any rate, at any rate, here's what I've noticed about this conversation that God has with him is that uh, God doesn't come and say, you are a true idiot, does he? Do you know, he, he, he asked three questions. Don't miss this. Here's a father who loves his kids. His first question is the question any of us any of us would ask if our kids went missing. Where are you 
And do you know what? He knows the answer to the questions already. Why would he ask? Why would he ask? All right, so if I tell somebody their sin, that's one thing. But if they tell me their sin, that's a completely different thing. Why? If I tell them their sin, it's called preaching. If they tell me their sin, that's called confession. They're ready to change. So do you know what I'll do? Sometimes I'll send a text and say, how is your walk with God? Do you know what that is? Where are you? That's what it is. It's a where are you question. If you're in a life group, your leader has every right to say, where are you? Godly friends have every right to say, where are you? Godly parents have every right to say, and responsibility, might I add, where are you? He asked that. And he's only talking to Adam here. God addresses the man, woman, and serpent in that order to show how he regards their degrees of responsibility. Adam is the one who got the message from him to begin with. So he called to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Question number two, who told you that you were naked? No one did. Adam's now enlightened conscience. Right? Innocence gone. I'm naked. So is Eve. Question number three. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knows the answers to all of these parents. We probably could learn from this, couldn't we? Sometimes maybe the best parenting we can do is to ask some good leading questions to get our kids to tell us things that that really we probably already know the answers to, but the kids need to say it out loud. Not, Not just accuse. That'll drive your kid farther away from you. But sometimes probing good questions are the best parenting you can ever do. How did, what did the man say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. And I'm, I must say to you, I've totally misunderstood this until now. Not totally. I've somewhat misunderstood it until a week and a half ago when I prepared this sermon. I've always thought, well, okay, the man blamed the woman and the woman blamed the serpent. It was this blame game that got started. And yes, that's true. But before the man ever blamed the woman, do you know who he blamed? God. Look at this. The woman you, God, gave to me. Wow. Like this is God's fault all of a sudden. And the Eve in the the woman indirectly blamed God too. She said the the serpent deceived me. Who made the serpent? God. And I ate.
sin diminishes our nearness to God and amplifies our distance from him. James 1.13 makes the record clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God has never tempted you, nor will he. Has he tried you? Yeah. Has he given you a test? Yes. So what is the difference quickly between a test and a temptation? A test is to see, to ascertain, just like in school, what you know. A temptation is given with the intention to make you fail. Those are two completely different things. In the test of our lives, have you ever been surprised after you've gone through a trial and go, I made it. God revealed what you knew. He revealed what he had put there. That's the point of a test. Trials, or temptations rather, Satan gives to trip you up. Paul summarizes all of this amazingly in one verse. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. When Adam ate the fruit, he would plunge every human being thereafter into sin. And how do we know it? Because you sin. Do you know this is the number one problem atheists don't have an answer to? Sin. Why? It's universal. And they don't know what to do about it. What do we do with sin? How do we explain sin in the world? Because if they say, well, there's no such thing, we'll let somebody go steal their car. And all of a sudden they believe in sin. Right? They cannot explain sin. So, so religious systems develop different ways of dealing with it. And Christianity stands alone in its solution. Stands alone. All other religions have works. You do these things and hopefully the, your good things outweigh your bad. So on our way back, we, we flew one of those little Allegiant flights, right? They're cheap and there's a reason. It's called seven hours of sitting in the airport because things get just totally messed up. And so we're sitting in the airport seven hours on Friday. Arrived at 1.30, flight supposed to leave at 3.30. They said it would leave at 6.30, changed it to 5.30, changed it to 6.30, changed it to 7.30, changed it to 8.30, then canceled the flight. And there we are. And you should have seen people. Oh, my. You want to see what happens to people? Mess with their plans. Adults are acting like children. People are screaming and yelling and all kinds of things are going on. Now, meanwhile, out there, it was wacko. All right, Our plane that we were supposed to fly on had some problems. And so Wendy is sitting there saying, I'm not sure that's the one I want to get on. They worked on it all day. 
FAA came in. They took it out, took it up, brought it down, took it up, brought it down. Third time they took it up, brought it down. Happened to come a little too close to a private plane flying in. Knocked it off course. All the fire trucks come. Seriously. And we're just sitting there and no one's telling us anything. We're just putting two and two together and getting 28. And so that's what's happening out there. And then I look and I see a couple and they figured out how to deal with it. They're, they're young. They're, 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 they're just tiny, tiny couple, right? And like body size. You'll understand why that matters in a moment. And so they decide to meditate. No lie. They're sitting in the middle of the airport. Uh, people are bustling everywhere. It's loud. They're sitting Indian style. They've got their fingers fixed just right. They're facing one another knee to knee and they're meditating. Impressive. I hone in on them. I was considering interviewing them for real. I wanted to go find out how this works and what they thought they were getting from it. And so I just watched, like I stalked them straight up. And so the meditating ended and uh, they just seemed to be at ease when uh, a kid over here just screamed like, you know, a banshee or something. I mean, it was unreal. And when it did, it jarred the man who was meditating. And when it jarred him, evidently it undid his meditation because immediately he looked over there and went, went, right back into it. Like I got to get back what I just lost. Honestly, no lie. And I watched him just, just try, you know, and evidently the girl, she was good and she was on her phone. So meditating on texting and he, he was doing that and, uh, that didn't work. So once he tried that, I guess, I don't know if it did. I'm just trying to figure out what's going through this guy's head. He lays down on his back, uh, puts her up Indian style on his feet, extends his feet up into the air and she's kind of swaying up. Yes, as she's meditating on his feet now, lying on his back, they're working it out, right? Do you know, I'm pacing, praying. Lord, let your will be done. If you want us to get out of here, then get us out of here. And if you don't, then help us to know what to do. Just just your will. God, I don't know. Right? I don't know. So, so why can I do that? And why might meditation come up empty? This is the distinction between Christianity and every other religion. Christianity deals with sin by saying this. And let me read it to you. How do you measure the size of a fire? By the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to fight against it. How do you measure the seriousness of a medical condition? By the amount of risks the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures. How do you measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? By looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus. The Son of God, who became like a common criminal for our sake and in our place. Sin is so serious that Jesus died for it. Christianity is the only religion that says, that takes sin that seriously. 
Every other religion says you can atone for it somehow, some way, by something you can do. When Jesus took and broke the bread and passed the wine, he said, I will atone for it. The real seriousness of sin, it's not seen in the Garden of Eden. It's seen in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed and begged God for the cup to pass from him and his sweat turned into drops of blood. He says, here, what do I do? If you do not know that Christ, oh, what would keep you from coming to him who died for your sins? If you do know him, are you still trying to atone for your sins in your own good works? They weren't then, nor are they now good enough. Christ is enough. Lord God, let us pray.